the truest test for me of whether a real estate lawyer is doing her or his job. And the best real estate lawyers are the ones who care about what they're doing. And caring and treating people uh, honestly and with uh, respect and dignity is really my theme. I'm not perfect. I sometimes fall down on the job and I'm happy to admit it when I when I feel like I do or if somebody somebody calls me on it. But my my theme and the way I go about practicing law and working in the in the legal and business communities um, in DC and beyond is to treat people fairly and to care about uh, what we're doing, treat people honestly. And I'd, I'd like to think that that's part of my reputation and that will continue to be my reputation. And that's really the most, the most meaningful thing to me and the thing that I tell or try to drum into younger lawyers who, who we have the honor of working with. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that. And then we devise a three-year plan potential for our second meeting. Then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. On today's show, I am so pleased to bring my longtime friends, Jay Epstein and Fred Klein of DLA Piper, onto the show to share their 40 years' experience as uh, now leading lawyers in real estate in the Washington, D.C. market. They bring a wealth of experience in all types of transactional development law as partners and friends. And... Uh, One thing that uh, they talk about is their being able to work together as best friends for this period of time is a special thing. They have a great philosophy for dealing with clients, which you'll hear about. They have a long and storied past with many different people, too many to even 
enumerate, I will try to do so in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy reading through some of the stories. I'm also attaching some documents that Fred has prepared about his his mentor and some of his uh, lessons learned and lessons to his associates, which I think are very valuable. So without further ado, here is my really, truly enjoyable conversation with Fred Klein and Jay Epstein. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me today. So welcome, Jay Epstein and Fred Klein from DLA Piper. Thank you for joining me today. It's our pleasure. Thank you, John. You're welcome. So to kick off, I thought we'd uh, get each one of you to talk a little bit about what your role is at DLA Piper and what your day-to-day focuses are. So, Jay, if you want to kick it off. Sure, John. Fred and I together have been at DLA Piper uh, coming up on 25 years, actually, this week. So we've seen the firm grow from uh, a tiny little office that we joined, about 300 lawyers, but there were a dozen people when we joined that firm uh, in D.C. with Ed Rudnick and Wolf. I don't know. We'll go back and talk about that. Today, my role is um, I'm just a senior partner at the firm, I think, watching many of the people that I helped mentor and lead when I ran the group for about 15 years in the U.S. and and globally. And today, I focus on connecting people around the world as as a partner in the firm in the real estate practice and and other practices, including infrastructure and other things that we were just uh, chatting about, and take great pride in watching um, people that I hired and and mentored around the firm continue to um, lead this uh, terrific real estate practice. Fred? My focus is co-head of the Washington, D.C. real estate practice for DLA Piper. Uh, We have about 13 people in our uh, D.C. group. We work on projects uh, in the Washington region and actually throughout the United States. In addition to uh, Jay, there's another partner, uh, Amy Carbons. So we're the three partners in our group, and we uh, work on projects really everywhere. We, as has been the case during my career, uh, we handle uh, a lot of acquisition and sale work. We do real estate finance, some development. We do uh, leasing and really the full uh, array of work. And I help uh, coordinate uh, work that we export to other offices uh, in the U.S. Jay will get into that a little bit later. We have offices in all the major cities in the U.S. and really work on projects, as I said, um, everywhere. And in addition to organizing and coordinating and leading, I actually also work. I negotiate, I draft, I follow up, I um, supervise, and um, really get into the trenches uh, doing um, working on deals, which is really sort of at the core of what Jay and I feel like we're good at and enjoy doing and have been doing for our entire careers. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Jay. Let's now turn the page back and look at the origin stories of each of you guys. And I thought maybe you'd start with Fred. Tell us where you grew up, Fred, and uh, on into high school, etc. We lived, I was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts. My family soon moved to Cumberland, Maryland. Uh, my dad had a little dress manufacturing business in Kaiser, West Virginia, which is about 25 miles south of Cumberland. We lived there for several years, and then we temporarily moved to New York for about nine years. My mom, my dad, my two older sisters, and I, I became a 
very enthusiastic New York Mets and New York Jets fan uh, during that time. Watched uh, some pretty lean years there and um, then enjoyed the championship, uh, the two championships um, of the, my two favorite teams um, as we left as we left New York and moved back to Cumberland, Maryland, and whereupon I spent 10th, 11th, and 12th grade at Mercersburg Academy in uh, Pennsylvania, which is about equidistant between Washington. It's about 80 or so miles uh, west, slightly north, and about the same distance from Cumberland. Then uh, went to college at Duke University and law school at the University of Miami. Wow, that's uh, your dad was in West Virginia and doing it's a manufacturer, and he sent you to uh, a prep school there in, in Pennsylvania. That's such interesting. So we, transition, we I guess. so when we moved when we moved back to Cumberland, uh, my parents were not enthusiastic about uh, the uh, two public high schools in Cumberland. Um, mm-hmm. And so they thought that to give me a better chance for um, college, uh, that they would send me to uh, Mercersburg, which they did. And I, I loved it there. I'm still very connected to Mercersburg. I helped them out on a lot of activities. I've served a couple of tours of duty on the Alumni Council. I have helped Mercersburg on a number of initiatives. I've done some pro bono legal work for them. I've done fundraising. My wife, Jill, and I have funded a writing program in honor of my 10th grade English teacher, who I still am in close touch with. And in fact, saw him um, as only last year. He now lives in Houston and is retired. And he and I attended at Washington Nationals, Houston Astros uh, World (laughs) Series game, game six of the world of the 2019 uh, World Series. So very connected to Mercersburg. I'm about to have my 50th Mercersburg a reunion, and I volunteered to be the reunion chair. So plans are ramping up uh, for that in uh, 2022. It's only next year. Uh, I oh, love Mercersburg and um, just a wonderful place. And things I learned there have uh, stood me in good stead my entire career. Is it co-ed at the time when you were there? So my first year, which was 1969, was the first year that Mercersburg had uh, women. There were only uh, women day students that year. There were about, I think, 11 or 12 and about 400 or so uh, boys. And in my senior year, which was 1971-1972, was the first year that Mercersburg had on-campus, you know, resident uh, women. And there were about 20 of them in one dorm, uh, just under 400 boys. Now it's 50-50. It's come a long way. It's a lot different place than it was. And um, I'm very, very proud of the school and, and uh, what it has done uh, over the years. That's great. So then you went on to Duke. How went to Duke. Good? Went to Duke. Like I, I, I really um, got a lot out of that. It was a great experience. Uh, one of the things, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this, uh, John, one of the things that I think about all the time and tell a lot of people about, and one of the things I'm proudest about is both legal drafting and uh, just writing in general. I learned about writing from uh, three from three people primarily. And then there's a fourth who I've added to that list. Uh, those three people are the aforementioned 10th grade English teacher, Floyd Robinson. The second person I learned about writing from was a gentleman named Andy Burness, who was an editor at the Duke University Chronicle, the student newspaper. 
who edited. Uh, I worked on the on the Chronicle. I was a news reporter, um, and Andy was my editor. And I learned a ton about writing uh, from Andy. And then uh, the third person, the third th- third of four, uh, was um, a judge that I clerked for uh, after law school. U.S. Court of Appeals judge that I clerked for, Judge Paul Roney on the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then the fourth person is someone that Jay and I worked with extensively for the first part of our careers, uh, Shelly Wiesel, whose name keeps coming up on your, on your podcasts. Shelly is, uh, without a doubt, one of the best uh, legal drafters that, that I've ever uh, come across. And um, so those four people really have had a major influence on an important part of my life, which is um, learning how to write and uh, draft. So four years at Duke, then I went to the University of Miami uh, Law School, which was also a, a, a great experience. I, I loved it there. Uh, Miami was up and coming. And Why I, there, Fred? Why there? You know, there was just something. About, well, first of all, I had this idea that, oh, might as well go to someplace warm. I'll play a lot of golf, which, which didn't happen. <laughs> but I, there was something school. about it that intrigued me. They had a new dean, relatively new dean, very well-respected legal scholar, Soya Menchikoff. Uh, She had brought in a number of professors from the University of Chicago, which is one of the best uh, law schools in the country. And I just thought it would be be something a little bit different. Turned out to be great. Dean Menchikoff helped me get that U.S. Court of Appeals uh, clerkship. In fact, she kind of pushed me into it. And that uh, clerkship uh, really opened a lot of uh, doors uh, for me and got me to Shaw Pittman eventually, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to as well. So it all worked out in a in a really in a really terrific uh, way. I enjoyed my three years at University of Miami. I've helped them out too uh, on some activities. I taught a uh, I was a guest lecturer last year at a at University of Miami and talked about a few uh, experiences and so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that that was that was good, and um, I'll I'll pause right now because let's let let's let uh, Jay catch up. So Jay, your story. Um, I grew up in a small town in um, northern New Jersey, uh, West Orange, um, which was then about probably 35, 45 minutes outside of New York City before um, some of the newer highways were there. And unlike Fred, my allegiances were to the Yankees for sure. Um, I grew up as a very spoiled person getting to go to Yankee games and watching um, World Series, frequent World Series. I have this great recollection of the 1960 World Series when Mazeroski hit the home run to beat the Yankees in the um, seventh game um, out in Pittsburgh and my whole street being pretty upset at that point and told my children until last year who are great sports fans here, my daughter especially in Washington, how Unlucky they had been until we finally won the Stanley Cup in the World Series um, in the last couple of years. Do you have any signed baseballs from Mantle or Maris or any of the famous I, players then? I have uh, Mickey Mantle's audit, uh, book, uh, his biography autographed, and I have wow. 1962 original Mickey Mantle baseball card that seems to be in pretty good condition based on what my uh, son-in-law has told me. So. Yeah, that's one of the great. I, I've got a lot of old um, ticket stubs, and that's the one baseball card I have. But I grew up in yeah, there. My my father um, owned a um, 
single hardware store that was his father's that started in the early uh, 1900s in um, Newark, New Jersey. And in fact, I have a sign from that store where the name is spelled E-P-S-T-E-I-N, um, which was how it was originally spelled. And then my grandfather changed it. He thought to make it less confusing with another Epstein in the retail business um, <laughs> in the early 1900s. I grew up, as I said, uh, we, I, I think I was born in Newark and lived in Newark for a couple of years. Um, and then we moved to West Orange, which was a growing suburb back then. And uh, went to you know public schools in West Orange and went to college in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University, which was two years, I think, after the Federation. I was on the engineering side because my strength was math and science. I was there at a quite tumultuous time, both because of the of the merger being new, the highlight of the sports season there. I played basketball my first year was the game from, for Case versus Western Reserve. So it wasn't quite the federated university that it is now. It was going through some. So Why you know, there from New Jersey, Fred? I mean, uh, Jay. What, what, you know, uh, I wanted to go to a good engineering science school. Uh-huh. Unlike my two daughters, I didn't get into the University of Pennsylvania. One of the highlights of my life later was when my first one got into Penn, which I told him was my first choice, but wasn't my time back then. So I went to um, Case to try and get a good engineering degree. I wanted to be at a university where I could get some liberal arts as well. And I ended up actually taking a lot of courses in accounting and other things on the, on the Western Reserve side. Graduated early, having had enough of Cleveland back, at that, back then. <laughs> Although we did have the Cleveland Cavaliers way before they moved into the suburbs. They weren't very good, but we had them. And um, ended up working back in New Jersey at, as an industrial engineer at Ortho Pharmaceutical, um, which was John. Johnson's one of the J&J companies in central Jersey, and then um, went to um, law school at Cornell uh, University up in Ithaca, New York, thinking that I had made it to the Ivy Leagues, which Fred's wife would heartily agree with, but some of my colleagues in my... So, engineering to law, engineering to law, talk about that transition. What, what, What made that happen? I liked engineering a lot, and I had settled in on um, a space that was uh, material science, um, and a lot of interesting stuff that later became a little relevant as the firm of Shaw Pittman, my friend and I worked, we were friendly with a guy who was an expert in aviation air crash litigation, where um, material science was very relevant with micro cracking in airplane wings and things. I made a decision that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life looking at the world through a microscope, which is what material science would have been, and I would have needed another you know, probably to get a PhD to be successful. So I decided to pivot. A lot of my friends were pivoting to business school. I had no lawyers in my family except a great uncle, um, uncle of my mom's in New York, and decided that I was just going to try law school, again, not knowing if that was where I would end up, but that it would just keep a lot of options open for me. Transition was challenging in many ways because, unlike Fred, I didn't have a lot of good English writing advisors and mentors because I was focused on calculus and differentials and physics and physical chemistry and all that good stuff that we learned um, and that's long forgotten. So that's a big pivot. It was a big change for sure and it was challenging in the beginning I think but I really um, really loved it. Cornell was a great place in part because the 
the law school class, unlike Georgetown, Harvard, and some others, was only 160 people. So you, so you got to really know a lot of people. Um, and Ithaca was a cold but beautiful, isolated place um, to be. And as I started to say, I thought, wow, this is great. I made it to the Ivy Leagues, where none other than Jill Klein and many in her family are, are, were, were, were to be both before and after me. But my two of my colleagues from uh, good friends from undergraduate Harvard and, and, um, and Princeton reminded me that the Ivy Leagues don't really reside in Ithaca. There are places like Boston and, and uh, Hanover and, you know, may, you know maybe... Um, maybe uh, uh, New Haven. So it was, a, it was an eye-opening conversation, but I got past that and really enjoyed my, um, my three years in Michigan. So when I interviewed Wendy White, your former partners, she talked about law school, learning how to tell stories and learn about stories. Was that an experience both of you had uh, in law school, the, the building of a story to a case? Was that something that, that kind of attracted you to it? And what kind of turned you on to law a little bit? I can tell you, John, I had some law school, some very colorful uh, law school professors who were <laughs> great storytellers. Many law school professors are, are really uh, frustrated actors. They, um, <laughs> they love an audience. They stand up in front of a big room and everybody's listening. And in fact, even, even better than an actor, uh, most people are sitting there actually taking notes. Uh, they're writing down every word that the, that the professor says. And a story, law often is, uh, involves a story of some kind. There's a, how did, how did we get here? Uh, what, are, what are we doing? We don't work in a vacuum. There's relevant facts and you get to a point where something, some action needs to be taken or there's some, some uh, transaction that needs to occur. Our old um, and dear uh, mentor and friend and boss, uh, Shelley, um, had a rule that we tried to adhere to, which was if you're working on a real estate tra- transaction, you should go see the property to get a feel for what it is. What does it look like? How does it feel? Where is it? What neighborhood is it in? Um, how did it get there? Who's involved? What are they doing? Because what we do as real estate lawyers, uh, transactional real estate lawyers, involves getting a deal done, getting a transaction done, putting parties uh, together. And you really can't do that unless you have a holistic view of what it is. Where is this building? Is it in this neighborhood? Is it in that neighborhood? What does that mean? What are the implications of that? What's the status? Where? What, what about that thing next door? What about that building next door? Do we need to worry about that? Who are the other tenants in the building? What are, what are they doing? What type of, you know, so that's all part of a story. It's part of a, a narrative. And the best uh, real estate lawyers, the best litigators, the best intellectual property lawyers, all those people understand that that there's a context for everything that we do. So there's a story, and the people who understand it uh, the best will do the best work, and and you'll be in demand. And personally, and I know Jay shares this. I love real estate. And I'm sure you'll get to this, John, just anticipating one of your questions. I love real estate law because of the context in which it's in, the context of the community, the city development, affecting people. Um, so uh, to me, that's the, you know, that's really the greatest joy. Yeah, I, I would just add, John, I mean, as usual, Fred's spot on with law professors being actors. I, I, I had, 
I had the good fortune to have one of the most famous, I think, law professors of our generation, whom many people know, Irving Younger. Um, and, pe and people know him because he used to teach in the bar review exams. And he was the ultimate performer, the ultimate performer. And I used to laugh. I, I didn't think he, he would look at it the room and didn't matter who was there because he just loved being up there talking. And the guy could tell stories better than anybody. And he would actually, to Fred's point, he would relate his stories often. He was a New York, um, New Yorker. He was a New York judge for a while. He would, and he would relate his stories to Broadway theater. So the best, and the best storytellers in the law are often the big, the big case trial lawyers because they're on their feet and they're all, they're talking to a jury. And that's what Irving Younger was when he was at Cornell. Um, and, Brought at Columbia and Harvard, I think. But yeah, and I, I think real estate is, and we can talk about this more, I'm sure, as Fred says, real estate is attractive because it brings people together, right? I, I, I work for, when I, when I started practicing, you didn't have to choose what area you wanted to do. As I said, I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I viewed myself as a utility infielder. In the early years, getting to work with amazing people like Shelley and Marty Crawl and Fred Drasner and Ted Rogers and real icons of the of, of DC, Steve Potts and others. And I tried lots of different things. And I, I decided really, especially right after I tried litigation, that that was not for me, because I was always dealing with other people's messes and problems. And I was confident that I would create plenty of my own problems, but I would <laughs> rather be on the front end of that equation right and putting people together um and in the end I, I concluded that i was i was simply um a deal junkie and in many ways it didn't matter at the beginning what widget i was working on whether it was corporate or i got to work on some really interesting computer and technology software with a wonderful mentor steve Meltzer. but in the end i drifted to real estate because fred dresner walked into my office one day um, one of my lucky days, never lucky being around Fred, but it was lucky Fred walked in and said, you are going to work on the Boston Properties account when Morton um, huh. was first coming to Washington. And I, of course, looked at him because I was a rule follower and said, hmm, yes, sir. And it turned out to be an unbelievably lucky day for me for lots of reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, because of who I got to work with and work for. And, and that sort of became my, my sort of line into real estate. And I had some friends also back then that were going into the real estate business locally. And I decided if I never thought I would ever have any clients, but if I wanted to be able to represent some of my buddies and see what was going on in Washington, I needed to learn about real estate on, on, on somebody else's nickel, not theirs. And luckily for me, it was mostly Boston Properties and a company, which many people in our generation will know, but some won't, um, who may listen to this, Rouse. And, you know, and we can talk more about that. Um, we want to talk about that part of our history. So tell me, both of you, how did you get to Washington? What got you to Shaw Pittman to start with? What attracted well, you me, there? That's an easy story, right? It's about, you know, timing is everything, right? Uh, so I graduated law school in 1976. And that was the year that New York was on the verge of municipal bankruptcy. Um, Felix Roytan and the Mac bonds and all the things that were going on back then. And I concluded um, that, and Cornell is a 
massive theater to New York City. It's very unusual for people to go any place other than New York, unless maybe they're going home. And um, I decided in the summer of 75, I worked in New Jersey my first year, in the summer of 75, I was going to try Washington and see what it was like as an alternative to New York. And when I graduated, uh, you know, it, it was, New York was where it was, um, I um, got a summer, I was a summer associate at, at Shaw, Pittman, Potts and Trover. It was 36 lawyers then, and it was, firms weren't very big back then, right? I mean, Wil, Wilmer Cutler was here, Hogan Hartson was here, Aaron, Aaron Fox was the other big transactional firm. Most firms, I mean, I didn't know they wanted to real estate, so that obviously wasn't what affected me. It was just, I got a job. You know, that was the place that was willing to hire me. And I decided it sounded, I met some really nice people through the interview process and I came to DC. And um, my group of uh, summer associates, not only I think all came back, but all made partner at the firm over the ensuing, you know, seven to 10 years. It was a great place back then. When I came back, it was 50 lawyers a year later. And it was, you know, on this path to becoming a major player in DC. Interesting, Fred. So uh, my my story is uh, a little convoluted. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Dean Menchikoff created an opportunity for me to be a federal court uh, clerk at U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal court level just below the Supreme Court. That clerkship was due to start just after uh, graduation, so I had extra time to think about what I was going to do after law school for my first job. I had originally planned to take the bar exam in Florida and thought maybe I would stay. But then uh, early in my third year, after I received the offer for the clerkship, which I immediately accepted, a very close uh, friend of mine, my best friend in law school, had an opportunity to take a job in Washington at a small law firm that was an outpost of a New York firm. And I thought it sounded like a great opportunity, and I, and I uh, lobbied very hard for my friend to take this job, uh, really pushed him hard, and he, and he ultimately decided to take it. And then he immediately had buyer's remorse. He was feeling anxious about having to be in D.C. Uh, by himself where he didn't know anybody and have to uh, spend the summer after he graduated studying for the bar exam. And he didn't know where he was going to live, and he wasn't going to be making any money, and how's he going to afford it? and started to make me feel a little guilty about having pushed him into taking that job. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just go to DC with um, my, my friend Bob and keep him company and study for the bar exam with him. And I'll take the DC bar and then I'll go back to Florida and I'll take the Florida bar during my clerkship. And then, uh, then I can decide what to do. So I did that the day after graduation, Bob and I moved together to DC. Uh, we rented a townhouse on Corcoran Street near DuPont Circle, uh, a unit in the townhouse on Corcoran Street, took the um, bar review class. Uh, one of my bar review lecturers was Jay's law school professor, uh, Irving Younger, a storyteller extraordinaire. And so we took the bar exam in late July. And uh, I woke up the next morning and there I was in DC and I had nothing to do that day. And uh, so I went over to see a buddy of mine who was um, working at Vincent and Elkins, uh, Texas firm. He, had, he was a year ahead of me in law school. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll look for a job in Washington. So I went over to my buddy's office. I sat down at, a, at an IBM Selectric typewriter and from scratch created a resume, which I hadn't done. 
So might as well get the job search process going. So I created a resume and then I got in his office. He had a copy of the Legal Times uh, newspaper, which just happened to have a listing of the top 25 law firms in Washington. And as Jay said, weren't that many large firms. So I went down the list and checked <laughs> off a few firms that were nearby and printed up my resume, made some copies on the copy machine. And his office was very close to the Shaw Pittman office. So I walked over to the Shaw Pittman office and <laughs> I went to the receptionist and I had my resume and I said, hello, I'm Fred Klein and here's my resume. And I would like to be uh, considered for an interview for a job when I finished my clerkship. That would be at 1800 M Street, right? 1800 M Street. So the receptionist said, um, hold on. So she called the, the uh, recruiting coordinator out and the recruiting coordinator came out and introduced myself. And she said, well, hold on here. You have a good resume. Hang on a second. She went back and she said, come on back here. I want you to talk to one of the, one of the lawyers for 15 minutes. And that lawyer was a, was a gentleman named John Carr, who uh, Jay and I uh, came to be friendly with. John was in the banking group, and um, I spent 15 or 20 minutes uh, with John. I was particularly interested in his uh, career, uh, his former career as a naval aviator. I was interested in, in, uh, in aviation, so we talked mostly about flying for 20 minutes. And I did the same thing at a few other firms. I walked. It was a very warm day, as I recall, and I didn't have any money in my pocket, and <laughs> I didn't have any cash. And of course, DC cabs were what they were back in those days, and I was and the subway wasn't exactly going where I wanted. So I walked around town. I got really sweaty, and I got really tired. And I dropped off my resume at about six places, doing the same thing. A few interviews popped up um, as a result of that. Came back in two weeks. Had a you know, full interview at Shaw Pittman, Hogan and Hartson, um, and a couple of other firms. Got a couple of offers from, you know, one from Shaw Pittman, one from Hogan. Went back to Florida to start my clerkship. Thought about it, thought about it. I like Shaw Pittman because they had green carpeting. And I thought, wow, that green carpeting is very welcoming. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like that feeling. And Hogan seems a little a little bit stayed and kind of uh, we, we were on the we were on the top floor and Hogan was on the fifth floor. Yeah, it seemed it seemed a little um, Hogan back in those days was at eight fifteen Connecticut Avenue and the windows were small and I don't know it just Shaw Pittman had these big windows these big picture windows and green carpeting and and the furniture was nice and I liked John Carr and I wanted to learn more about being you know landing a jet on the top of an aircraft carrier so. I took the Shaw Pittman job. I mean, it was the most unscientific uh, thing I could have done. And when I finished my uh, clerkship, I came to Washington in October of 1980 when I met Jay. And um, that was the start of my career. Thank goodness. <laughs> so who did you start working for, Fred, there? Well, like Jay, I was a free agent uh, for a while. That was the plan. Then one day in the winter of... 1981, similar experience, very similar experience to Jay, but I wasn't visited by Fred Drasner. I had an opportunity, which I really was not relishing, to assist on a ultra-large and ultra-complicated litigation involving a nuclear power plant that had been built by Brown and Root in Texas. 
and there was about six to nine months of document review that needed mm-hmm. to be done down there. And uh, they asked me, they asked me if I would do it and like leave the following Monday to spend six to nine months in Houston in a windowless conference room. Or there seemed to be an opportunity for me to work with Steve Hutler, a senior associate who was uh, doing a lot of work for BF Saul Company and affiliates at the time. And BF Saul owned some pecan farms and a couple of pecan processing plants in Southwest Georgia that uh, Frank Saul had uh, acquired through a just an unusual set of circumstances. And they were getting ready to sell those assets. And Steve needed help and asked me if I would like to uh, do that. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. This guy seems nice. And going down to Houston, sitting in a windowless conference room for six to nine months did not seem that fun to me. So I said, I'll take the pecan farms deal. That was it. That got me started working with Steve, who I still speak with uh, frequently, who's now retired from Shaw Pittman, uh, now Pillsbury. That got me started. Then I worked on Boston Properties Matters with Shelley pretty soon thereafter. And um, that's how I that's how I got started on real estate. I would say too, John, Shaw Pittman had an amazing array for a small firm, maybe it was 75 when Fred got there, maybe a little larger. I was, the, I was the 80th lawyer when I started in October of 1980, John. Of talented people in a wide range of areas, right? I mean, we can chuckle about the nuclear practice and going to going down to Houston, or they later represented Three Mile Island, you know, led by Jerry Charnoff and Fox Rovers, really? was the best nuclear practice in the country, right? <laughs> it had this amazing group of business lawyers, Marty Crawl and Ted Rogers, who was Mr. Saul's roommate, I think, at UVA. Right. And Barbara Rosati. Old, actually. Right? <laughs> Barbara Rosati was, a, I think, an associate or partner at Covington, and the firm had hired her away, and she was probably one of the most accomplished women lawyers in the city back then. She was Mr. Saul's you know, tax planning lawyer on all of his foreign offshore investments. And then you had this aviation practice. I actually started out doing some work in the aviation practice thinking, hmm, not like Fred that I knew how to flew a plane, but if I worked in the aviation practice, maybe I'd get to see some great places. And the only great place I saw was standing in line outside the Civil Aeronautics Board in 1978 when Alfred Kahn from Cornell deregulated aviation. And uh, it was actually a pretty interesting time working with Steve Potts and those guys. And on the real estate side, there were all these future stars like Shelley and John Engel and, and others who you know were just coming up and Steve who weren't other who weren't partners. And there was Marty and Fred and, and, and people that you know we got to work with and, and really as we tell, and we know we'll talk about this later, as we tell younger people all the time, you gotta get around people who will mentor and teach you. Fred is the best at this. But back then, you know, it was an interesting group of people with very different styles from, from Marty to Fred, Ted, and a few others um, that we got to work with and, and really made us um, great lawyers and, and, and built an amazing practice, which of course brought on people behind us like Wendy and and planning and Debbie Debbie Spartan and Becky Owen and and you know a, a lot of them were interesting people. The corporate practice was fabulous. Tom McCormick, you know, joined the firm a year after I did, and 
became, you know, the, the rising star in the corporate practice. And then, as you know, went over to, you know, um, worked with Mr. Saul directly for years up at uh, 8100 Connecticut. So when you joined, Jay, you were the 35th lawyer in the firm or something? I was like probably that? about the 40. I was, the summer I was there, there was 36 lawyers. And there were five of us in the summer program. So when we came back, there were two classes. So I was probably about number 45. And Fred was number 80. So the, in the, what, four years between the two, you grew so we had moved, So one of my connections to real estate, one of the things I got to do as a summer associate was sit in on meetings for the negotiation of the lease at 1800 M Street. Mm. Sean, and was based at 910 17th Street when I was a summer associate. The old bar, B-A-R-R building, mm-hmm. that still had, had um, elevator operators like the ring building <laughs> in that summer. And I got to be involved in those negotiations with Fred and Marty. And on the other side, icon- icons like John Donovan and Steve Braylauer. That's how I met John um, and Phil Carr. Uh, Oliver was not involved, but Phil was involved. Watching Fred work Phil Carr, and I, I think our starting rent in that building was $8 and change a square foot. Oh. Um, oh. And just, just to show how life changed, we had options on either quarter or half floors every few years going forward. So we encumbered the building, um, the upper floors of the building. We must have been the first tenant. We got the upper floors. And my error before in thinking Hogan was there, Hogan was actually right, was at 815 Connecticut, as Fred said. I mean, the, the CBD wasn't very large. The law firms were pretty close. Aaron Fox was over at the Federal Bar Building, you know, on Pennsylvania between, um, I think, 18th and 19th. And on the fifth floor of our building was Lane Edson, um, where Bruce Parmley, that's how I met Bruce Parmley, riding up and down the elevator. And the other big firm on our side of that building was O'Melveny and Myers with Bill Coleman riding up and down the elevators with us. So it was a really interesting place to be uh, and be around lots of smart people, both inside the firm and sort of in that. And that was a big brand new building. When when I got back in 1976, the firm just moved into the building. Was that one of Carr's first big office developments in the city at the time? Or do you know? Well, Carr would have had the building at the, um, what is it, 1776 Penn, you know, the corner of, you know, 18th and Penn, um, right. down there, 17th and Penn, that's where they were then, I think. Yep. But I think that was, you know, the, the development was moving off of K Street, right? So 18th mm-hmm. and L, right? I mean, the ring building was across the street. I don't know when Blake built 1150 Connecticut, you know, I don't think that was up then, but I'm not sure. And of course, 1850 M Street, the Manual Life building was not up. It was all those townhouses, um, right. you know, along M Street. And uh, 1219th Street was probably up just around then, a block away. But yeah, that was one of Carr's first big car was just a little company. And it was Phil and Oliver, um, you know, Senior. And Donovan and Braylauer were two of the key people and two of the greatest people that ever worked on real estate in Washington, those two guys. I just want to add one thing. To, to just drive this point home, uh, Jay and I uh, would not be the lawyers uh, that we are today and would not have had uh, nearly as much success as we've had together as a team and also as members of a group, I think, but for the experience of having worked with those people that Jay just mentioned. 
They were smart. They were aggressive. They were business-oriented lawyers. They had a sense for the market and a sense for relationships that was really unparalleled, extremely entrepreneurial, but also really, really top-rate uh, practitioners. I'm going to send you, John, in a minute, a letter that I wrote to to one of our uh, former colleagues, uh, Steve Hutler, um, in 2015 when Ted Rogers uh, passed away. And it in that letter really um, highlights the lawyering skills that that Jay and I learned and that we have tried to pass down to other younger lawyers um, along the way. And I am, I will forever be grateful to that cast of characters who I must admit made me feel very uncomfortable, very nervous, very inadequate, very scared when I worked with them. But as I, as I reflect on it today, particularly in a context like this, I realized that it was an extremely unique experience and opportunity and privilege for us to be part of that. So I will forever be grateful to uh, all of them. And whenever I, some have uh, moved on, some have passed away, but without fail, when I, whenever I speak with Shelly or Marty Crawl, Steve Hutler, I, um, I mention that to them and how grateful I am for that experience. And I know Jay feels exactly the same. I think the other really interesting historical piece here, and a difference from today, right? I mean, not everything Fred said is right. As, as you know, John, Fred and I agree on 99.9% of everything in life. But the, the, the reason those guys and girls in Barbara were fabulous lawyers is they were not just real estate lawyers. They were business lawyers. I mean, Marty was really a corporate lawyer who picked up on real estate. Ted was a, Ted did everything for Mr. Saul from, you know, SNL you know, banking and, and, and corporate and offshore. And Fred, Fred demonstrated, I think, lots of things, good and bad. But the, the best thing about the history and what Fred demonstrated is the best real estate lawyers in Washington, which is what he became at some phase in his career, were the people who started out as tax lawyers. And when you think about that, that includes Steph Tucker, that includes Joel Simon, Fred, that generation of people who, of course, unlike the, even unlike us, but particularly unlike the current generation, that had to specialize. Earl, they didn't have to specialize early. And and you know, Marty Marty was a fantastic lawyer. Fred was fabulous, just like Steph, just like Beta, and you know those kinds of people because they had they really understood the tax laws, right? And that was, of course, driving lots of the transactions. And as young lawyers. We had to understand it also back then, whereas today, the challenge and the difference is if a young lawyer has a tax question, and we do it as well because we're not as up to it, we'll call our partners and say, hey, please, please look at this and give us some advice. Back then, you know, I was in the library reading what people as old as me will remember were tax management portfolios as he did research before Lexus and Nexus. So it was really fortunate lucky things that were really great for, as Fred said, to be around that brain trust, Shaw Pittman, and, and obviously Paul had it at Aaron Fox, um, and at Lane and Edson, um, you know, those were the firms, you know, and even the smaller firms back then, Glassy Pewitt and, and Bramson Zeidman, you know, all had those sort of really interesting people that were 10, 15 years older than us in some cases, and that were generous with their time and intelligence and shared it with us. 
Stepping back for just a moment, coming out of law school, you know, there are options more than just going to a firm. You know, you could have gone into government, you could have gone into uh, private, you know, business, you know, corporate law. Why law firms for you guys? I mean, what, why did you choose that route as opposed to going into other practices? I had just spent three years in law school and then an extra year clerking for a federal judge. And I thought, here I have this uh, brand new shiny law degree, might as well go use it for a while. And the best place to learn about lawyering and still the best place to learn about lawyering is in a law firm because you learn basic skills and put them to good use. So in law school, you learn a lot of theories and you learn how to do a lot of very valuable things. But often, and this has changed in law schools, law schools have have, are much more in tune to the practical side uh, today because the students insist on it. But at that time, and still to a, to a very large extent today, the first job in a law firm will hopefully put a freshly minted lawyer into a situation where she or he is able to sit there real time, as Jay said, and, and, and witness things happening and be part of them and have people take an interest in you and critique what you're doing and teach you how to uh, develop those lawyering skills and hopefully learn how to develop your own skills. And once you have that, once you have the basic framework, once you have to have developed the basic skills, then there are tons of other opportunities for you out there. But uh, I always feel like the recent law grads who don't go to a law firm for a, sh- for a short time and it's not for everyone, but um, to spend your career there, but don't go to a law firm for a short time. I think kind of lose out on the on burnishing your uh, skills that you developed or learned about in law school from a, you know, often from a theoretical standpoint. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, John. And I think there's a difference, right? Today, people have a lot different options today than, than what the market was like 40 plus years ago for Fred and me. People weren't going directly to big companies in most cases because there weren't in-house counsel, weren't, didn't have big departments. Of course, some of the big companies, General Electric and others did, but those companies also typically weren't hiring from law school. They, they exactly the reason Fred said, they were smart enough to pick people off of law firms who had been trained by good lawyers, often by their partner, you know, relationships and and, knew, and then knew the companies. And, and the government, plenty of people went straight into the government. Barry Rosenthal's a good example. Phil Schulman probably also. Those people went to work for HUD because they had to know what they wanted to do, right? And then they spent a few years, you know, at, at a place like HUD and then came out and they were, you know, some of the leading lawyers in that specialty and expertise. But for us, particularly coming out of good law schools like Miami and Cornell and others, the path forward that you were counseled to, for all the reasons Fred said, was going to law firms and get trained. And of course, the difference then was all people weren't moving around the way they were today. The law business, you could have a whole different discussion on the evolution of the law business. But people went to law firms thinking, okay, I'm going to work here, I'm going to be a partner in six or seven years, five years, even back then in the early days, right? And it was really an advantage to be a summer associate someplace like I was. Say okay, I like this place. If I got an offer, I'll, uh, I'll probably come back. That's that's true still today. But people don't join law firms today. And in fact, we often counsel young lawyers against it. Don't worry about making partners. It's a different world. Find a law firm where all the things we've been talking about, mentoring and training, and then equally, if not more important, find a place where you like the people. Right? 
because this is a really hard job, hard profession. And I tell young lawyers all the time, and Fred does as well, and he's much better at this than I. But if you're not in a place where you like the people and you're enjoying going to work as hard as it can be every day, then you're in the wrong law firm and maybe even in the wrong profession. And I'll, I'll never forget, we were interviewing a lateral partner candidate one day. We were sitting in a conference room, six or seven of us from the firm. Um, it was as a Chuck Hitman and the lateral partner. And Marty, I think, was late to the meeting, and which he sometimes was. And we were sitting there making fun of Marty and laughing and having a good time, right? And the lateral partner candidate looked at us and said, I don't remember ever being around the table with my partners and laughing, right? And I looked at him and said, well, you're obviously in the wrong offer, right? <laughs> because we, you know, we, we, we do that at that law firm, and we obviously believe that we do it and nurture and have fun with our current crop. But I think it's really important, and it's true in any profession, but this is a profession that has a lot of demands and expectations and pressure on young lawyers. And if, if you're not someplace where you are enjoying the people, you've got to find the work you like, right? That doesn't happen right away for some people. I had no idea I was going to be a real estate lawyer, right? But, you, you know, and even today, you can start, you have to pick a path, but you can change. But you've got to have people that you like being around and that you have fun and laugh with most every day. So the first real estate lawyer I was exposed to in my career was in 1979 at Prudential Insurance Company. And his name, and Fred knows him, is Jack Murray. Jack Murray is one of the most well-written lawyers, I think, in in the annals of U.S. law, I believe, in property law. And he told me that, you know, he started a law firm in Detroit where he, where he grew up. And he said, you know, the culture of the law firm is very competitive, very intense. He just didn't feel like it was the right place for him. So he wanted to find another alternative. And the situation in an institutional investor like Prudential was a pretty good one because he could manage his situation well and interface with lawyers and law firms to help him with, you know, complicated cases. But quite often, they did never engage the law firm. He would take on all the legal activity uh, himself for uh, financing and joint ventures and everything else that we did. But it's an, it was an interesting philosophical difference that he had. You guys know Fred or uh, Jack. I'm just curious what your inter interpretation of that is, of that idea, of that thinking. Well, in some ways, it demonstrates exactly what we just said, right? He started out in a law firm, decided right. he wanted to do something else. Prudential had, and we, we, we came this close to hiring Jack towards the end of his career. Really? So Jack, Jack you know, was a fabulous, wonderful national you know, personality. And, and as you say, more well-written than most anybody out there. And Prudential had, you know, Prudential was one of those big institutional clients that had some terrific in-house lawyers, Harry Nixon on the West Coast, right, and, and Jack in, in the central states. And look, Boston Properties, when we started working with them in 1980, I think, I think had one in-house lawyer, who Fred and I know well, and is still hanging out sometimes, Rick DeAngelis, who came out of a Boston law firm, and Mort and Ed hired him, you know, probably when they started Boston Properties in the late 
60s, early 70s, as I recall, early 70s, I think, when they left Cabot, Cabot and Forbes, and, and Rick was one of the early hires. And then, you know, they were smart enough to hire in-house counsel in Washington, but not right in the beginning. They, you know, they had regional counsel. So I think that path, Jack's a little older than I am, um, but that path was a very viable path for some, law firms weren't for everybody. Right, because what he said was right. Right, they were competitive and they had lots of challenges, and there was plenty of fear factor in, in the way some people mentored younger lawyers, particularly um, colleague and mentor Mr. Drasner. And we used to say at Shaw Pittman, one of the reasons we were trained so well, we used to say, I mean, Shaw Pittman was a you know tough, you know tough in, in the trenches kind of place, not a tough place to work because people were great, but. Most of the lawyers that grew up there, even the ones that came from other firms, Marty came from the government, as I recall. I can't remember what Fred did before he was there, but they didn't come from big institutional places. So they weren't in, they didn't get trained in these hierarchical relationships like at Covington and, and, and Wilmer and some of the older line firms where the Junior associate worked for the mid-level associate, worked for the senior associate, worked for the junior partner. So it was always, in, in our lives, which is what was so great, we either got to work for senior associates at that point, Steve and Shelly and John, I think we're all associates, John Engel, right? Or we got to work directly for the partners. So we were working directly for Marty, directly for Fred, directly for Ramsey Potts occasionally, right? And we used to say that their philosophy was you have just enough rope to hang yourself. Just enough rope. Figure it out. I mean, we used to go into Marty's office in great fear because he couldn't explain. Marty would just grill people, grill you on what you were doing and, you know, how you got to where you were. Shelly would do it in a very different way, in a much more pedagogical, thoughtful way. But you had to know what you were doing. And you were on the spot. And, you know, that wasn't good for everybody sometimes. And, and law firms weren't good. But one of our most famous partners is none other, as you may recall, than David Rubenstein, right? Mm -hmm. David came to Shaw Pittman after the Carter administration, right? And was he going to be in law firms forever? Uh, I don't think so, right? But he was pretty good while he was there using that unbelievable Rolex and introducing, you know, and getting business for people. And, you know, and then one day he woke up and said, you know, I'm going to go form Carlisle with Daniello and, and, and Norris and, and a bunch of those people. You know, some of them are still there, and you know, became, you know, because he was a good lawyer with us, he became a client of the firm. But um, law firms are not for everybody, and that's that's still true today. Talk a little bit about the division of activities within the real estate practice. So, Jay, you focus primarily on leasing, and Fred, you you focus mostly on transactional law. Is that kind of aligning with the brokerage community? because that's kind of the way they split up the disciplines a little bit. Whereas at a development and operating firm, you've got to do everything. You, you know, you've got all the disciplines you're managing because you're taking a project from ground up to completion and operations uh, in the development side and then operating, you're acquiring a property and then you're, you're managing and operating it, uh, which requires all the disciplines, you know, leasing, management, uh, transactional, et cetera, and even land use, which is another practice that neither of you practice, but you probably have a lot of experience with. So talk about that divisions there a little bit. Let me lead off, John, by just saying that um, Jay, Jay and I mostly view ourselves as, um, as one 
unified uh, unit. So it's <laughs> it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit misleading to the you know to the general public and to your you know millions of listeners to differentiate uh, too much between Jay and me and and what we do and it and it points up an important theme that that I hope I hope we have time to get to today, which concerns uh, Jay's and my uh, partnership. We view ourselves as sort of one legal advisor who's able to provide different kinds of advice. Jay, it's true. Jay has focused on leasing transactions, um, but many other things like the major corporate relocation that he that where he was the where he was the the lawyer on uh, some time ago that worked out extremely successfully for for all parties development deals um, you know you name it and and you're right uh, transactions purchases and sales and finance uh, for me but Jay, Jay and I sell ourselves and we present ourselves really as a unified team that uh, where we have various areas of specialization and um, and that and that has been a great uh, strength for us it enables us to work at a high level in in those areas and it enables us to help our clients uh, solve problems in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different ways um, so it's true and, and and even today as Jay said uh, there is unfortunately a lot more specialization because I don't think you can be a competent and effective lender's counsel, for example, representing an insurance company or a bank, unless you have an intimate knowledge of how leasing works and how a lease relationship, a landlord and tenant relationship works. Because where's the where's the money coming from to pay the debt service? It's coming from the tenant. And if you, as a as a lender's counsel, say, "Well, I don't, I, I'm not going to look at that lease, or I don't know anything about that lease, or I don't understand uh, how it works, or I'll, I'll, I need to get somebody else," you're really not doing your client much good because you can't write your loan documents and negotiate your loan documents unless you understand uh, what the tenant's rights and responsibilities are. And we we try to take a holistic approach and we try to encourage our younger colleagues, even younger partners, to have as broad a perspective and experience as possible. You, and as Jay said, you also really can't be an effective real estate lawyer unless you understand federal income, the basic principles of federal income taxation. You don't have to understand minimum gain chargeback provisions in a joint venture agreement in order to understand how a joint venture works. But you, but you damn well better um, understand how um, promote structures work and how uh, partnership partnership exit provisions and dispute resolution works. If you're going to be involved in some other aspect of a transaction where that comes into play, so we like to continue that theme of people having a broad uh, base of knowledge and understanding and experience, and also, and I'll turn it back to Jay, to uh, really intimately understand, and this is where, this is one of Jay's best qualities as a lawyer, really understand the business deal. What is the business deal here? What are the, what are the parties trying to accomplish? John, your question is, you know, spot on, right? And Fred's 
summarize it very well. It's part of the evolution of the law world. I mean, as I said, the, the best real estate lawyers that we worked with were the ones that started as tax lawyers. And then the ones underneath that, right, I think are the ones that, just as Fred said at the end, you, you need to understand your client's business. I mean, I view myself as a leasing a developer. I was a real estate development lawyer. I, I had the tremendous good fortune to sit next to Mort and Ed Lindy and Ray and Bob Burke and work on multiple Boston properties developments. And then also get to work on a lot of retail projects with First Washington and others. Um, and the broader perspective of working on all sides of those transactions and then having linked in my right arm there, Fred, who was on, well, he wasn't doing leasing. He was more focused on financing. He was a development financing lawyer. So we brought together, we thought, right, a, a team that um, did could cover all the bases, right? Shelly Shelley did everything, right? Fabulous financing work. Shelly was my mentor on leasing work at, at Capital Gallery. And we were you know, arm in arm doing the first Boston properties leases at Capital Gallery. And you know, and you can see that that I mean, we view ourselves as business lawyers, business advisors, business lawyers, right? And you can see how people that we you know helped and mentored and trained. I mean, Wendy's a great example. What what is look at what Wendy's gone on to accomplish as a member of you know sitting on public boards, and and that's not just because she's a good real estate lawyer, right? You know, it's because she understands real estate, obviously, but she has the perspective of understanding bigger issues and the business side. And I think just just what Fred said, I, I look back while I didn't like being a litigator very much, I learned a lot, right? And I got a real appreciation for why you don't want to be in litigation and how you need to think about what you're doing when you're doing transactions to minimize the chance that you'll end up there. And we work really closely with, with many of our litigation partners when we're talking about different clauses in in documents which have gotten longer and more complex. What about land use? I mean, that's its own animal, it seems. So, so that's a good question, right? And as you know, right, in, in this town, in D.C., right, there were a group of firms that became the land use experts and, and had well-deserved reputations. Obviously, Wilson Artists, Linos and Blocker, um, and then some smaller groups around, but th those were the two people. And, and we decided back in the Shaw Pittman days, right, that, you know, it's really, unless you're in that boat all the time, and particularly in, in land use and zoning with all the unreported opinions and everything that's going on, unless you're a full-time lawyer doing that, very hard to do it. I mean, you know, as Fred says, we need, we need to know what FAR is, and we need to know how buildings are developed and what entitlements might be required. But we decided back then that we would basically partner with Chip and Wayne and Bob Linos and all those kinds of people out in the suburbs and downtown and, and wouldn't compete. Having said that, right, we were at a disadvantage because this is before, you know, lots of those guys scattered to good firms, including Chuck Pittman after we left when Maureen and Phil and those folks came over there. Wilts artists had a nice advantage, right? Because they had Lois Vermillion, right? And, and Bob Gorham, right? And they had some transactional lawyers. So when somebody would come to town, they would say, you don't need to hire Shaw Pittman and us. You can just hire us. And if you look at our Rudnick and Wolf Chicago office, that was their model. They have, and have, they had and continue to have, they had the best land use practice 
in, in Chicago among the best, Ted Novak, and a tremendous group of lawyers that he developed in Chicago. And they had great transactional real estate lawyers representing Sam Zell. And they had a practice very similar to ours, which is the one reason that it was easy for us to move over there. And we've, we've tried to do it, right? When Maureen and Phil left Wilson Artists, when Wilson Artists was breaking apart, you know, we worked really hard to get them because we could see the advantage of having people together and just having a more diversified holding. But, you know, they ended up at Chuck Dimmon and it worked out great for them. And, and, and of course, now they're at Coolston. But most of the big firms, you know, couldn't compete with those highly specialized firms, particularly here, you know, in, in, in D.C., you know, different in Virginia, right? McGuire Woods was a broad-based firm, and they had them, and Hazel Thomas. They had the land use practices, just like Wilkes and Artists had on a smaller basis. I talked to Fred about your friend, Louis, Louis Vermillion, and Bob Gorham, and how Wilkes and Artists had an advantage in, in many situations like that. But we knew we couldn't do it. You either had to hire those people to come inside your firm and join you, or you had to collaborate with them. And, you know, as Ray loves to say, you know, what's one of the best things about being a real estate professional in Washington is it's a community of great collaborators and people who work together and, you know, in most cases, respect the boundary lines, right? And don't try to steal each other's clients, but know that together we're much more powerful and we can collaborate and be really successful. And we've worked on wonderful, fabulous deals with all those, you know, land use lawyers that I mentioned and Roger Winston today, who's not less of a land use lawyer, more of a condominium, you know, REA and, you know, association kind of lawyer, right? And we don't do that either. And, and we know, you know, to tell our clients, sure, we can figure it out. We can definitely figure it out. We're, we're smart enough that we can figure anything out. But it's much better for our clients not to invest with us and to go pick up the phone and call Roger and say, hey, you got, we got another deal we got to work on with you. That's great. That's good. It's collegial. So talk about your partnership together. You talked about Boston Properties. And of course, I've interviewed Ray on this podcast and had him on another forum as well. And he's just a special person. Another person I'll bring up is how I, you know, reinforced my relationship with you, Fred, who was with uh, Steve Lusgarden at Blake. And I think both of you dealt with him. And I'd be interested in stories, you know, those two guys and then any others that you want to talk about uh, in relationships and how you built your partnership together, getting to know clients and working together as a team a little bit. Well, Blake's a great example, right? Because how did we meet Steve Westgard, right? Across the table, right? Across the table. We represented, believe it or not, First Washington, who got control of a piece of ground downtown, John, you'll remember, the greenery. And Blake owned Stanley Bender on Mr. Days. So we negotiated a joint venture between Blake and First Washington to develop what is now 1150 18th Street. Got a couple of other properties in that assemblage. Steve um, and Howard Bender and Steve Schwartz were on the other side of that deal. And we negotiated a tough JV and very tough construction contract with Stanley Prill, where we learned a lot. Um, <laughs> um, but um, from that point forward, we, rep we represented the JV. And then the connection to Blake just goes on. It's not just Steve. That's where I met Mitchell Shear. Because you'll remember that Mitchell worked for Steve. Right. So, you know, Blake was a great 
company to work with, notwithstanding some of its reputa historical reputation. Howard Bender was an absolute prince of a guy, and Steve is a brilliant tactician, brilliant tactician, and creative beyond you know many people. And Fred and I always say that Steve was among, one, among our best clients because he was so smart and thoughtful and exciting, you know, and interesting to be around. And like we tell people all the time, you nurture those relationships, right, and the relationships with the people that you meet because they will, unlike Steve, who stayed forever, but people like Mitchell and Scott Johnston and um, other people, you know, came and went through the Blake portal. And Boston Properties, as I said, you know, one of the luckiest days of my life was when Drasner ordered me to go work on Boston Properties, not only because I got to work closely with Shelley, but that was just an extraordinary group of people. I mean, Ray is Ray, Ray is the iconic leader of our community, right? And back then, I mean, Ray had just started, right? Ray mm -hmm. had just come from CD, working with Bashik and Hal Bowles and all the talented people there. And Bob Burke had come down from Boston, right? And it was Ray and Bob and another guy named Joe Morbeck, right? The Boston Bumman from Leggett McCall, right? Yeah. Had moved down to work at Leggett McCall with Joel Cannon, right? And, and, and be more its eyes and ears here in Boston, so we, here in DC, so we'd have somebody with the Boston experience. And, and, you know, Boston Properties had one project back then, Capital Gallery. Mm -hmm. And we had, Fred worked on the financing side. I worked on the leasing and development side. We had the privilege to be in the trenches there working on Sumner Square, U.S. News, Democracy Center, Capitol Gallery, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, 500 E Street, all these amazing transactions that mm -hmm. we got to work with. And to, and to Fred's point before, I remember Mort saying that Shelley was the best real estate lawyer ever worked with. And Mort worked with some pretty good real estate that lawyers. That says a lot. Right? That says and, a lot. And, and Mort, and, and I'm sure Ray talked about this, and nobody was tougher than Mort to work for, right? Brilliant beyond brilliant, right? Um, and, and the partnership with Mort and Ed that, that we got to really participate with and be part of was, as I say, you know, we were working with two of the most brilliant minds in the real estate industry who 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 changed the industry. And you know. And, and more as tough as he could be and demanding, right, was also the most engaging person to be around and always thoughtful and helpful. I will never forget person trying to lecture Mort on ground leasing, uh, who's no longer with us, so I won't insult him. I was in the room with Shelley and Mort. We were trying to do a deal up next to Democracy Center and the lawyer and the principal but the lawyer was lecturing Mark on ground leasing, not knowing that Mark was really probably the father of ground leasing. And Fred may be the inheritor of that great legacy is having done more ground lease work than anybody. And we walked out of that, and Mark just sat there and listened and smiled and engaged. And we walked out of that meeting, and Mark said to Shelly and me, we will never do a deal with them. And it proved to be true because he pivoted and did the deal with Kemp and Seagrams and bought the Democracy Center site right next to the Camelier site um, up at Democracy and, uh, and 270. So it was just an amazing, you know, learning experience for people like me and Frank got to work with more too. And so yeah, the Boston Properties run was an amazing timing is everything, good fortune 
good luck for us. Fascinating. Any insights, Fred? Jay's comments really just underscore the personal uh, nature of what we do. And uh, relationships are the bedrock of commercial real estate. And for commercial real estate uh, lawyers, maintaining uh, strong and positive and trusting relationships and creating, establishing, and maintaining a positive reputation, uh, both on the legal side and on the business side, is key to success. One of the things that we've uh, really emphasized and put a real premium on, the two of us, and we've shared this with our colleagues, is the need to establish and maintain that relationship whenever you can. And it has nothing to do with whether anybody, any particular person is a client of ours or gives us, gives us legal work to do. There are plenty of people that we know in the real estate industry uh, that we, where we've been on the opposite side of the table or some people that we've never been involved with in a transaction who we consider friends, confidants, who call us for advice in a very informal way, uh, who we share um, our perspectives and information uh, with uh, for the general good of, of our industry and, and maintaining those kinds of relationships with those people in addition to being good business and being smart to um, you know for you in terms of um, your reputation and getting work and and people paying you or you know your 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 legal fees, it also makes what we do more enjoyable. It enables us to feel like we've made a positive impression on other people who we respect and who we've learned from and who have done meaningful things for the community. So you can. As, as the expression goes, you can spend your entire career and countless thousands of hours uh, building up your reputation, and it can take about two minutes for you to destroy it. And we are acutely aware of that. We try to conduct ourselves in a way that uh, brings uh, honor to our law firm and enables people to trust us. And uh, that really uh, underscores everything uh, that, that Jay and I do. Uh, day after day and have done for the 40 years, uh, that 40 plus years that we've been working together. And, and most, most proud of John, right? That look, pe- clients come and clients go, right? And some people can't hold on to clients, right? How, how lucky and proud are we that we've had client relationships for 40 years? And in many, some cases, Boston Properties being the best example, we didn't start it, right? We had to work our way up and earn the confidence of the Ray Richies and Bob Burks and, and others over the years. And that sustained us. And, and I mean, Lusgard and Steve's a great example, right? And it goes back to what Fred was saying before. It's a perfect example how Fred and I formed this unified team, right? When they, when they developed, you know, the building, on, you know, on the corner of 20th and K, 2100 K, right? I worked on the development piece of it. Um, the ground lease and, and the lease and all that kind of stuff. And Fred worked on all the very complicated financing piece. And Steve goes back and forth between us, knowing that we're not only the closest of friends, but we're a unified team that, you know, over a long period, while we, you know, I may know this much about financing and Fred may know a little bit more about leasing than I know about financing, but we also know where we need to lean on each other and do what's most important here, which is do the best job for these terrific clients that we've been friends with forever. And we also know 
that you can't get overly comfortable with those relationships because you got to be good and you got to keep doing it. And, and there's plenty of plenty. So I say to young lawyers all, all the time, I mean, good lawyers are a dime a dozen, right? So how do you demonstrate to your client audience that you're, you're better than your competition? And you do it the way Fred and I have been saying and doing, right? You do it by not only developing friendships, but understanding the client's business. I used to encourage people early on, right? Don't, don't spend your time going to ABA and DC bar meetings. Go to DCBIA. Go to ICSC and go to that right. great, wonderful organization that I had the good fortune to be part of for a few years when I was younger, the real estate group. Right. Yep. And that was started by all these great people, you know, before us for real estate up and comers in Washington under 35, which of course yep. they had to increase it to under 40, right? Because people were aging out quickly. <laughs> but yep. there weren't that many lawyers in that group. And you remember right. in that group, people used to stand up, they used to bring a guest and stand up and go around the room. We had our meetings at the bottom of the Grand Hotel, the great hotel that that Joey Kempfer developed, another wonderful client that we had the good fortune to represent, thanks to Mitchell Shear, right? Mm-hmm. But you used to have those meetings of 50 or 75 people, and you would go around and introduce yourself, and you would introduce, here's John Coe, my guest, and here's what he does. And, and that, again, helped build this cohesion in the D.C. real estate community. It's funny, because Graham White was the sole member of that the whole time and your rules were you couldn't have more than one person from a company right. there. So I right. never joined the real estate group, unfortunately, because he was the member the whole time. I wanted to talk, you know, when you guys are looking at your clients and saying, oh my God, these guys are doing so well. Why don't I get into the business side of this? I know this business now pretty well. I've learned it. Why don't I get it? Why don't I cross over and get out of law and go into the business side of this? Did you guys ever think about doing that? Was that ever a thought in your mind? Well, I do have those thoughts, um, or at least the first part, where we where we see uh, clients um, and friends on the business side who are extremely successful. And Jay and I both take great pride in uh, being part of a successful project and having uh, friends and and clients who are extremely successful. But I have to tell you, John, I've really never thought about it in any serious way uh, for one primary reason, because I love what I do. I love being a counselor. I love being a trusted advisor. I love working on this side of real estate deals, and I gain great satisfaction out of doing it. And I think that the job that I have and that I've had for the last 40 years and that I'll have for a while longer is is a job that suits my personality, my skills, and I love it. And I really, I really don't want to do anything else as a you know as a major focus. In the last several years, I've I've turned more of my time and attention to uh, community-based activities, pro bono uh, service work for uh, nonprofits where I can expand my my focus and use my skills in a different way. And I plan on doing more of that um, in the years to come and spending a greater proportion of my time um, on those kinds of activities. But real estate development and real estate speculation and, and that sort of thing, it I admire the people who do it. And I think they should keep on doing it and keep on making plenty of money so they 
have extra money to donate to the nonprofits that that I care about um, so much. So not really, not really tempted. And, um, you know, it's, uh, but having said that, there are plenty of people who do what Jay and I uh, do who have done it and who have done it extremely successfully and with, with a lot of, um, you know, with, with a lot of uh, joy and uh, success. So that's great for them, but uh, not for me. Yeah. And I would just, I would think John, almost any lawyer that's done what Fred and I have done, which has become business consigliaries, right? Mm-hmm. To our clients, mm-hmm. not knowing where the line is. And some people obviously don't like when we cross that line, when they're across the table. <laughs> different different yeah, story. I've surely thought about, oh, what would it be like on the other side? And as Fred said, plenty of people have been very successful. You know, and I've turned down some of those opportunities. And I, I love what I do. And I really love being involved in the business negotiations. Having said that, right? I also like having multiple clients. Right. And, and not just doing one thing, which is one reason I didn't want to be a general counsel someplace, because then you got, you're always dependent on a single client. And let's not forget that practice of law has been very kind to us. And we've all built really successful careers um, and done quite well. And we've had, a, particularly in Washington, we've had a pretty good, not good glide path. I mean, there's been a couple of drops when interest rates were 18 or 20 percent back when you and I can remember that. And, and people were given back properties. But even then, right, the lawyers were busy, right? Maybe had to, you know, pivot a little bit and become a, learn a lot about bankruptcy and restructuring. And, and we all know plenty of our friends who've had some pretty vicious ups and downs on the business side. So, you know, you're conditioned to be risk averse as a lawyer. Um, and that's part of my DNA for sure. But I've been happy on this side. And as Fred says, we, we're, we take great pride. We're part of the team particularly on these development deals and, and, and big, big projects that we've worked on. And, and as the world has gotten even larger and, and, and more national and international. So it's been a wonderful run being on this side. It's been different. I don't look back with any regret. Like a lot of lawyers, what I'd like to have gotten, maybe I would have liked to have been in an MBA JD program, like one of my early mentors, Steve Meltzer, who was one of the first people to go through the Harvard JD MBA program because it would just give you more perspective and better understanding of the things that we learned, not as well, but that, you know, Ray Ritchie used to come to the office and early in our careers, give a lecture to us on how a deal got done before we got involved and walk us through the underwriting and the cap rates and and all the things that, and, and back to what I said before, this is what we would say to the young lawyers, listen to this. This is really important so that you can be a better lawyer if you understand what your client is analyzing and thinking and evaluating. That's a great lesson. I'm doing that right now with my ULI mentor group. We're doing a, a Taylor Chess of Peterson and Oliver Carr and I are doing a, a, an educational program for our mentor group with, with attorneys and a, accountants and and architects and people that really aren't deal makers to understand it, which I think is really important to do. And ULI, so, ULI is great yeah. for that, right? Because ULI historically didn't have as many lawyers, right? So right. The people like the lawyers that got active in ULI early on, like Barry Rosenthal and some others, right? Got the benefit. And that's why I went to ICSC, right? Got the benefit of hanging out with the business people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So both of you guys have excelled in your respective practice. Your former colleague, Wendy White, developed a philosophy she works by, which is called excellence, engagement, and empathy. That's her kind of her theme. 
Do either of you have a credo for your practice and your relationship with your clients? Well, Fred will have a dozen of those because he's much better at it. So I, I defer to <laughs> you. Right, go ahead, go ahead, Jay. You 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 give it a, you give it a shot. I, I I don't have any. I'm not good at making sayings. I, I admire that. I like that Wendy's thing, right? I, I used to say to lawyers, in addition to understanding the business, you need to care about what your clients do, and you need to demonstrate that. I mean, you want to go and look. We have plenty of good colleagues, present and past, right? That we're really happy to sit in their office and be the best at you know just sitting there cranking out a lease or cranking out a financing, right? And and I used to say back when we used to work, Fred, if you remember with Rob Geeson up in New York, right? The guy did nothing but construction loans, so he was fabulous at construction loans, right? And but we used to say, as we said, we wanted to do a bunch of different things because I wanted to be able to spot issues, and even if I didn't know, you know, what was the best construction loan, you know, experience at that point, I could go down the hall, ask Shelley or ask John or ask Fred years later. So I think understanding the business side and reading up on the business side of what clients are doing. And then to Wendy's last point, it's empathy. It's about caring what, what your client, we're not in the business to make money. We need to make money because we got to have successful Law firms. And there's plenty of lawyers that are in the business to make money. But that wasn't our credo. Our credo was to, as I said at the very beginning, John, I was a deal junkie, right? And I just happened to fall into the real estate side of that box. Luckily, I didn't have to go, you know, spend nights at the printer and read proxy statements and those kinds of things because nobody was public back then, right? But getting and, and being lucky enough to become friends with, with clients, either have friends or who are clients, or really become friends with the Ray Ritchies and Steve Westgardens and Mitchell Shears of the world. And then, and I think it all feeds on each other, right? But it's really about caring about what your clients are doing and having almost a personal stake in the success of each project that you work on. I agree with Jay, of course. The truest test for me of whether a real estate lawyer is uh, doing her or his job. And the best real estate lawyers are the ones who care about what they're doing and caring and treating people uh, honestly and with uh, respect and dignity is really my theme. I'm not perfect. I sometimes fall down on the job and I'm happy to admit it when I, when I feel like I do or if somebody, somebody calls me on it. But my, my theme and the way I go about uh, practicing law and working in the in the legal and business communities um, in D.C. and beyond is to treat people fairly and to care about uh, what we're doing, treat people honestly. And I'd, I'd like to think that that's part of my reputation and that will continue to be my reputation. And that's really the most the most meaningful thing to me and the thing that I tell or try to drum into younger lawyers who who we have the honor of working with. Fred is also Fred is also the best underscore the best mentor of young lawyers that I've ever worked around, and and I mean that in two ways, John. One is he has this enormous patience, which I don't have. He's taught me many things, but this enormous patience to sit across his desk with young lawyers and literally, and I had the benefit of this from Shelley and Steve Meltzer and others, sit across the desk and go through work. 
and go, and mark not just mark it up, which I will tend to do and send it back, but explain and push, like we said Marty did, on what you're thinking about and how you got there. That's an unbelievable skill set. And the other thing Fred's great at is he'll he's you know he'll have the top ten ways of of becoming a better associate, the top ten ways of of being a, a new partner, right? And he'll commit it. Nobody's a better, I'm sure you know, John, over the years, a better note writer and, and summarizer of those kinds of important things that people think about but often don't commit to writing and how best to, you know, not only translate it but to send it down to the next generation, right? But here it is. Here's Fred's top 12 list. Here's Fred's top 20 list. And I have those things, you know, that I hold on to because I don't, I don't do them. I'm not, I'm not that good at that. We all know what our strengths and weaknesses, and that's one of Fred's many strengths, and it's unique, I think. It's interesting you say that, Jay, because Fred and I have done several transactions together, and I've always found him to be very fair and extremely meticulous, just to the to the iota. And I can working with Steve Lusgarden, who. Other than Gary Rappaport, the two most meticulous people I've ever dealt with in real estate. I mean, they checked every T and dotted every I and checked every number to the penny <laughs> that I ever dealt with. And Fred was that way in law and from what I could see. So, But one of the interesting things you raised there, too, and one of the challenges of lawyering. So Fred and I both, I believe, pride ourselves on, you know, negotiating to the middle of the field right? Life is long here. And it's particularly true in leasing. I, I learned early on, if you beat the you-know-whats out of a landlord representing a tenant, the landlord's going to have a lot of opportunity to level that playing field later, right? So you got to negotiate, you hope, to make compromises. But we're the lawyers. We're not the businessmen and women, right? So as I used to say when I would lecture on negotiation strategy and theory, you need to leave your ego at the door and you need to follow your client's lead. And if you're not comfortable with what your client wants to do, and I, I represented for a while, we represented one of the most challenging, difficult clients in Washington um, who would push that edge um, plenty, right? You got to leave, you got to resign from that, you know, representation because we are in the end, notwithstanding everything we've said, we're glorified bad carriers here. We work for our clients and, and we have to, up to the point of being unethical, right? We, if our client wants us to be tougher than is our personality, you either decide that you can, you know, rise to that challenge and do it because that's what you need to do in that deal or you don't. Um, and if you don't, you can't represent that client because that client's entitled to do that and do everything it wants to do, right? Up to, up to crossing the line. So it's a real challenge. And one of the great things is we have seen all kinds and all types, right? We've laughed about those things from time to time and struggled yes. with it in other situations. And it's an important thing to remember that, yes, the client is the one who makes the decisions here, not the lawyer. So turning to the real estate markets, particularly for law firms, how do you see the pandemic influencing space use in the legal profession? Will the demand for space contract as attorneys may not come into offices frequently, into the offices frequently, and perhaps have flex offices when they do? For you know, example, Gladia, you guys are both in Florida right now. So 
talk about what, you know, if you were advising your clients long-term about law firms' future, you know, space use in Washington, what do you, what do you, what would you tell them? So since I'm the space guy, I guess I'll go first. And I know Fred will comment on a very important part of it. First of all, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? I don't think we know. I think that, and of all the industries, right, law firms are the slowest to react generally. I mean, PwC said early on, office use will be different early on in this latest of crises that we've faced and maybe the most significant of our professional lifetimes. So, look, I think that law, it's really important for law firms to come back to the office, right? I mean, part of it is our old school view that, but I still believe it, really hard to mentor, all the things we've been talking about, mentor, train young lawyers remotely. Zoom's been fabulous. Law firms have done great. I was aghast at some of the big law firms that applied for PPP loans, like they weren't doing well enough um, <laughs> on, on, on their own remote working, but there's no question there's going to be a period of time here. And it's not months. I think it's going to be years as people adjust because the law firms will want to experiment and we're going to experiment too on it for sure. And we're going to try to cut down some space in the near term. Um, and whether we live to regret that or not, we will see. But I do think there's been a permanent shift probably in how people will work. And people may not, even post-vaccine and post-herd immunity, right? Maybe people will feel that I don't want to commute, right? And I don't need to be in the office. We will need to get people back to work, right? And I think you, of course, know that there's, as with every one of these issues, there's multiple sides to this discussion. But people with, I just heard somebody say this a couple of days ago, the people with young kids, in some ways, can't wait to get back to work, right? Because their houses are so hard. But they got to get their kids back to school. Right? They, they, can't, they can't do it with their kids home. So I, I think while law firms will give up space, remember also that one of the great dynamics of the past five years has been densification of office space. And law firms were, as always, late to that party, but they've been doing it. We, we're, we're converting our D.C. office, as we've done in several other locations, to single-sized offices, which will now look pretty good in, in the post-pandemic world. But it's not going to look so good having four legal assistants, you know, working close to each other. So you're going to have to de-densify your space. So where will you end up between de-densifying and reducing space? I think you'll end up at some reduced footprints for law firms. I don't think it's going to be 25%. I think it's going to be 5 to 10%, right? Maybe 15%. And it, it'll, it'll be all over the lot. I, for one, I'm a big believer in the future of cities. I don't believe that, I think it's going to be challenging in the near term for the high-rise mass transit cities. And we're in between, this is, this is the first time in my life I've really loved the height limit, right? I, I'm a New Yorker. I like being in tall buildings, but now, you know, we can tell people you don't need to use the elevators in many of our buildings. You can walk up. But we got the metro. We've got plenty of challenges too. New York, Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, they'll be slower to return to where we were than LA, right? Because it's a awesome, right? Because those are car communities, right? But as one of the great professors at Wharton said early on in this thing, this is gonna be a, a little variation of Darwinism. It's not gonna be survival of the fittest. It's gonna be survival of the most adaptable and the most innovative, right? And as Roy March said in the very beginning to this point of 
come back to back to the office, not back to work because we're working, right? You cannot build culture remotely. Cannot do it. I mean, think about it. All of us, we got our cultures. We're into our cultures. True of our young partners, true of our senior associates. But think about onboarding people in any of these companies. All the, and yeah. it's not just the law firms. It's the brokers. It's it's the it's every it's all the professional organizations. You cannot inculcate what we've been talking about and have had such great success with for forty plus years in new lawyers, and that's just not new associates, right? That's lateral partners. It's it's everybody. So we have to get back to the office. We have to put in, in the safety and spacing and social distancing measures that are important today. And I, I think, and, and, and like many things during the pandemic, many things were an acceleration of trends. We were seeing part of this before. We had people who didn't want to come to work. They liked working from home. And we realized that that wasn't a good thing. We, and Fred and I would talk about this in respect to a couple of our partners. Not, not in our group, because we don't really have a real estate group, but how could you mentor your team if you don't show up in the office, right? So I think that challenge will be out there, and I don't think it will get solved quickly, and I think that you'll see people coming back. You know, look, six months ago, we thought people were going back to work for sure by now, January 1st, right? And in New York, we're talking now about, forget June, they're talking about the fall, right after the summer. And I think the cities like New York, it's going to be a, a, a long, tough slog to get New York back to where it was. Oh, but, but it's going to get there. And there's all these studies that there's productivity studies, right, that demonstrate that people in the same office, in the same, not just manufacturing, but even at the professional level, that there's, there's analysis that there's an increased productivity at a material level, 3 to 5%. It's not 20%. But it's not 0.5% either. It's 3 to 5% more productivity and for sure more innovation when people are in the room. Graham was just at a meeting he told me about two days ago where he was in a room with architects, developers, project managers on a new project that he's working on. And he said there is no way that that meeting would have been as productive if it was done via a Zoom-type platform. And I, and I think that we're going to continue to see that. You know, you might have people back in the offices that don't want to go to conference rooms for a while and Zoom from their offices. That's okay. It'll be a gradual return. And I don't want to even say a normalcy. It'll be a gradual return to whatever the new paradigm is going to be. Anything to add, Fred? No, I, I agree. <clears throat> I think people will be a lot more um, sensible and practical about uh, spending money on travel business travel, but business travel will resume to a certain extent, not to the extent that it was, but people will still uh, take the time and effort to get together. Um, the inter As Jay said, the uh, personal connection and contacts to solve problems, to innovate, to uh, collaborate, I think will always be there. We are, we're human beings and we need, we need human contact. It's interesting. Uh what I've noticed is that the, the software sector, which right now probably drives the, the U.S. economy, if you look at the stock market over the last year and a half, two years, uh, the top six firms are probably half the growth of the, <laughs> of the value of the stock market, which is the driver of business. And most of those firms have said, 
you can work remotely indefinitely. We don't really care if you come back. And so the question there is, is that going to pervade? And you're saying no. I'm hoping you're saying no. Our industry relies on you thinking that. <laughs> it's no. Let's hope that your belief that social interaction is important. I think we all want to be together physically. And I think it's a human nature thing. It's a tribal thing going back, you know, millions of years with the human race. So hopefully that will prevail long term. But we're seeing innovation now that is amazing with AI and some things that are happening that just blow me away that, you know, might change things indefinitely. I can tell you on an anecdotal basis, our three uh, offspring, age 35, an employee at Amazon who works in New York City, age 31, an employee at Parthenon, which is an EY consulting division, and 28-year-old HR professional at Cushman & Wakefield in, in San Francisco who works in Silicon Valley. Each of those three, who's been working remotely now for 10, going on 11 months, each is anxious to get back to be with their colleagues and bosses and compatriots. They don't necessarily want to be in the office every day, but they want to get together with their colleagues and they want to have personal interaction with their bosses and with the people who report to them. There is no doubt that more can get done, more can get accomplished, more truthful and honest performance evaluations, whatever you want to do. Meeting in person is is just much more powerful. But will they be in the office five days every week? Probably not, or at least not, or at least not for a while. Will performance evaluations continue to be done visually on a on a screen like this? A lot of people can help it. You get one chance during the year for your performance evaluation, and people are not going to want to do that on a Zoom call. People are going to want to do that in person, and that requires space. And I just think we'll be back to people getting together on a somewhat more limited basis, but people will get back together in in the business world, for sure. And on that space issue, to your first question, John, so if, if if the... trend and if the norm becomes I don't have to be in my office more than three three days a week works just take an example right or you go to this every other week thing that some people are doing right how much space do we need to your point right I mean are we really going to rent the same number of office space on the office space piece for people not being in the office full time I submit the answer to that is we're not going that's going to be where there's going to be reduction in space and the law firms, which are the slowest, to, the law firms are going to become like the accounting firms were, and maybe the hotel. Um, and partners will just have to get, guess what? You're going to have to share your office, right? And will we ever go to hot desks? Who knows, right? The brokers have done it, and they're, they're professional. They're out of their office more. But, you know, I think this is an evolution, and it will continue to change. Just like it's changed over the years, there, there's a lot of unknowns out there, just like who would have thought about WeWork, right? Other than Adam Newman and some brilliant people on what they built and co-working here to stay. So you've both been very active in the uh, community, including board memberships, real estate organization leadership, and volunteer activities. Do you participate in this to keep yourself visible for legal work, or do you do find personal satisfaction in contributing or both? Uh, it's a combination of both, John. 
on the personal side, I have felt like I need to, uh, I want to, and I need to give back to the community in ways that where I can be helpful and productive. And I have found opportunities that sometimes use my direct skills as a real estate lawyer, other times just my general skills and abilities. Uh, on the real estate side, we helped uh, Martha's Table through a very long process sell their historic home on 14th Street and generate an enormous amount of capital that's helped uh, see them through the current crisis. And we worked on the business side of that, on the legal side of that. It was a wonderful uh, pro bono activity. And I've done others, others like that. But also, as a way, those kinds of activities are a, good, are a good way to meet people in the community and get to know people in the business community and legal community as well, to just enhance your personal brand, to get more people to get to know you. There's nothing wrong with, with, your pers- with enhancing your personal brand. I'm a big fan of that in, um, you know, with, with younger lawyers and, um, and preach that. There's some wonderful literature out there um, about that. And so pro bono really and community activities really serve both uh, purposes for me. Yeah, I mean, like most everything in life, John, right? It's a combination of things that you choose to do. And I agree with everything Fred said. I, I think it's, it's important to give back. And, and our firm is great at supporting that. We have one of the most robust pro bono programs in the world in lots of creative ways and working with clients. And, and look, one of the great examples in Washington, I think, is how Mitchell Shear harnessed the energy of the real estate community around higher achievement. I, I don't think many people probably in the real estate community knew what higher achievement was 10 years ago. And Mitchell took it on. And did he take it on you know, to enhance his reputation? I don't think so. I think he took it on because he saw a real need to help underserved kids for the future, right, in, in, in D.C. and Alexandria and Richmond and other places where higher achievement was. Higher achievement's been around for 42 or three years now. And Mitchell got the real estate community very focused on it and raised, you know, millions of dollars over a period of years. And I, you know, I got pulled into that through Mitchell. I got pulled into the American Heart Association years ago through Steve Luscarton because the vendors were huge supporters of the American Heart Association. So it, it puts you, and it puts you out there. Sure, it, it absolutely enhances your reputation and will, you know, were there many potential clients on the American Heart Association board? It was a bunch of doctors. But it puts you out there learning about what's going on in your community. So I view it as, you know, when you're intellectually curious, when you have these opportunities to be on these nonprofit boards, as distinguished from the for-profit stuff that many, many of us also do, you get to learn about a lot of things and meet a lot of interesting people. I didn't know very much about education and the higher achievement both participation before it was on the board and the last two years on the board has been a fascinating run. And then I have the tremendous good fortune to sit on Annika Sorenstam's foundation board and, and watch how she tries to manage her brand and, and, and strategically do things for, for women. And, you know, with two daughters, that was a great, you know, other plus for me. And of course, as you know, Fred and I love golf. So, you know, being around Annika, who's just a, another normal person out there who happens to be the greatest female golf golfer of our lifetimes, if not ever, and watch how she thinks about on the business side with her husband, who's the president of the foundation and others, running um, an organization and maintaining and building a brand and helping 
women and, and young women around the world, both you know, in their professional lives of wanting to be golfers and also on nutrition and other important things. It's just, it's just wonderful being around people like I'll go ahead and highlight on the show notes the organizations that both of you guys are involved in so that people Great. know, and I appreciate that. So over your careers, what would have been the most surprising or events or transactions you've ever participated in, and how did they play out? One for each of you, maybe, just one, because we don't have a whole lot of more time. So if you can think of one. As we said, it's all about people, right, who you got to work with. And I, and I will say, you know, I, I've had so many interesting, surprising transactions. The, the assemblage at 1150 Connecticut was a, um, which wasn't 1150 Connecticut, just was full of ups and downs and somebody spiking the assemblage who, you know, came up with the great, one of the great quotes ever. That, you know, because he was a friend of several of the principals in that deal. And he said, friends are friends and business is business. And I had the opportunity to spike, to spike your, your development. So buy me out, right? So that, and, that, and that, you know, because of all the things we said, that spawned all these relationships with Blake, with Kempfer. You know, got to work with Joey Kempfer, right? Who is a brilliant, brilliant, creative person and all the great things he accomplished downtown and in Europe, right, on the, on the outlet centers. So that, that's just one of many. I, I will quickly say the highlight for me is not a transaction, right? It's a series of building the, the, the Brudnick and Wolf BLA Piper real estate practice and having the opportunity to recruit the best and brightest real estate lawyers around the country. So it's not a Washington issue because Fred and I came. And we all we used to joke with the guy who hired us that that was his best hire, hiring the two of us. And, and Fred was really pushing you know, me to do that. And, and you know, it was hard for me to leave Shaw Pittman, very hard after 20 years. But it was obviously a great decision for us to do it. And then I, you know, from that platform a few years later, got asked to recruit people around the country, and recruiting you know, some of the best lawyers in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Boston, where we recruited the best group of real estate lawyers you could imagine, and in Washington and Atlanta and a few other places. That, that was a really great run for me. And people used to say, why do you like doing that? And I would say what I've said before, I'm a deal junkie. And, and out there trying to convince people who didn't want to leave their law firms, just like us, those are the people you wanted to hire. The ones who were really satisfied and doing great at their firms. And we got some of the best in Steve Cowan and Michael Meyer and Elliot Sorkin and John Solomon to leave their law firms come work with us. That's great. And on, you know, on, on my side, I, I've worked on a lot of large, extremely complicated, difficult projects with, you know, with difficult people. But for me, oftentimes, the things that nobody really knows about or cares about um, have been the most meaningful. I've enjoyed working with various uh, friends on their businesses. My friend, Glenn Rosenthal, probably at the top of the list being his lawyer when he left uh, Carrie Winston uh, mm -hmm. in the late 1980s to start his own real estate company. And I've been there with Glenn for more than, I mean, he and I have been friends for more than 35 years and he's been out on his own and his post uh, real estate broker role for more than 30 years and helping Glenn along the way and solve problems and, and uh, deal with sometimes difficult uh, situations has brought me great joy. A few years ago, I helped a couple who were 
in a bad spot relative to a, to a property that they owned. And we went through a um, lengthy uh, process to help them and deal with deal with some uh, financing um, issues. And um, at the end of that uh, project, woman said, you have much uh, larger clients, many larger clients, but you have no more grateful clients. And then lastly, I'll tell you about a very meaningful comment that I received from uh, Nick Antonelli in <laughs> late January of 1990 that I will never forget. Nick Antonelli was really the first client of, that, I, that I worked with that, uh, that I really had generated and, and nurtured, uh, thanks to, a, to an introduction from a former colleague, uh, Dick Beatty from uh, Shaw Pittman. Nick and his uh, consigliere, Mitchell Blankstein, and I finished two very complicated multi-part transactions through, the, uh, through 1989, uh, just before the real estate crash in early 1990. Nick had a who was a wonderful person and was very, very good to me, very demanding and uh, very smart with a very, very short attention span and not much patience. But in late January of 1990, we finished up these projects. We got them done. They had a great result. Nobody knew what was, what was about to uh, come. And uh, one evening I was in his office with him and I was about to leave, putting on my coat to go back, to walk back to the office. And he turned to me and he said, you know, uh, we really couldn't have done this without you. That was more meaningful to me than anything, than the legal fees he had paid to our law firm, than the notoriety that resulted from getting those two things done. It was more meaningful than anything. We couldn't have gotten this done without you. So those are the things to me that, you know, I, I, and I'm not finished with my career yet, John, I'm still, still going. But um, when I do have the time to write my memoirs, not that anybody will read my memoirs except for me and maybe my, maybe Jay and maybe I will, maybe Jill will. Those are the things that, those are the things that I'm going to talk about. Those are the things that I'm going to um, highlight because those are the things that are the most meaningful because they're personal. As we said two hours ago, when we started this conversation, Uh, those are the things that are personal and meaningful and things where, you're really having a positive um, impact. So, uh, that's, so that's, that's the best for me. I have to now tell a story as well about you, Fred. And this is a story that means more to me than just about anything. On, let's see, uh, an October morning in 1986, I was in a hospital with my wife and um, I had to call my boss at the time, Peter Selwood, to say, Pete, you need to, uh, you need to go to the closing table for a deal in uh, a shopping center deal in Northwest Washington called Spring Valley Center. I can't make it. I, my, son, my wife is about to deliver our first, our oldest son. So Pete showed up apparently at closing and uh, Fred was uh, handling the, 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 the case for Crown Life, who's our lender. And this was a $1.9 million leasehold financing uh, of a shopping center uh, complex transaction for, for the size of the deal. I mean, it took a lot. And we had one of the more difficult borrowers in the, probably in the region, a guy by the name of Melvin Lincoln, who was a tough guy to work with. We got the deal done. 
it was interesting because that morning was Fred's birthday as well. He was, that was his birthday. And he had just come in from the World Series seeing the Yankees play, I think the night before, Mets. if I'm not mistaken. Mets and Red Sox. Oh, it was the Mets. I'm sorry. World Series, game two on Sunday night. Um, things never change. I took a, John, I took a, um, I told you not to worry. I took a, I took a, um, at that time, the earliest shuttle was 6 a.m. from LaGuardia. I stayed at the Marriott right next to LaGuardia Airport that night, which was, you know, two minutes from Shea Stadium and uh, took the six o'clock shuttle, got home, quickly changed my clothes, actually changed my clothes in the office and, um, and went to the, and went to the closing. And, um, that was, I, I, I have very fond memories of that as well. Yes, it was, uh, it was quite a morning and it was uh, an amazing transaction and I really appreciate it. But that was the first of, you know, we did the deals, three deals together with, with Steve Lusgarden. We went on and did uh, a project uh, on uh, 14th Street, or actually, I think it was on G Street yep. with Dean Witter, did several transactions with, uh, yep, and we just sure. had a great time. Yep. John, one more deal that Fred and I worked on together quickly. Okay. Yeah. Because it encapsulates a, deal, a lot of what we did. Fred mentioned it briefly. So, the relocation of the Bureau of National Affairs, BNA, from 25th Street in the West End over to Virginia, right? That was a deal. And Fred's now working again with the same brokers on that deal, whatever it is, 12 or 15 years later after we did that deal. That deal was an unbelievably complicated transaction because BNA was employee owned own the ground, had to do a 1031, couldn't possibly um, deal with the tax issues back then for them. And, and they didn't know where they were going to go, right? They went, you know, they looked everywhere. And I do mean everywhere. And we ended up in Crystal City. And why did we end up in Crystal City? Because we introduced them to Mitchell Shear at Vernada back then. And, and what it demonstrated in, in, so, in so many ways was we were able to do a deal across the table from another client that we had developed a wonderful relationship with, represented by a fabulous lawyer who we haven't mentioned yet, one of the all-stars in Washington real estate, Michael Goodwin. And there's, oh, there's, yes. no, no, there's nobody better, present company included, That's I think. Great. And we were across the table on some really difficult, challenging issues from Mitchell and Mike Facitelli and even Peter Lineman made, made an appearance in that deal. But, and, and we had to do an exchange and who ended up buying the BNA land and the buildings and knocking them down? Mitchell Shear, Bernardo. So what we thought would be really simple, oh, we'll just go, we'll just flip the keys, right? It, it was an incredibly complicated transaction, which worked out, I think, great for everybody. BNA is very happy in Crystal City. Mitchell, Bernardo bought the building, which is now the new apartment building with the BNA headquarters and the other office building is still there where Steve Becker sits or did sit for a long time. But it had more complications in it because of the, the particular players, because Mitchell had to deal with Steve Roth, who had never at that point, I think, sold the building in Crystal City and BNA couldn't do it with a lease. So it has all these complicated provisions about if BNA ever decides to sell the building, guess who has to have the first option? Back then, Bernardo Charles E. Smith, and but now JBG, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyway, it was really a, a fascinating transaction that Fred worked on with me. We all did it together. We were in those board meetings and advising the client, and it was just a really interesting deal. 
So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Jay? Well, to be so lucky as to meet Fred Klein. Um, <laughs> I will preface this by one other thing about Fred. Robert Gottlieb, who I'm sure you know, know um, who was another great tax and real estate lawyer in, in D.C. We were, we Steph were Tucker's mentee. Steph Tucker's mentee. Robert said to me, we were together once on a Stuart Levin golf trip. And Robert, one night we were sitting around the campfire, just relaxing, said, you, Jay, don't know how lucky you are to go to work every day with your best friend. Oh. So few people in Washington or any place have that benefit. And I, I had ever, this is probably 1989, who knows what. I had never ever thought about it that way. And I'm not good, as good as Fred is at remembering what people say to me all the time. I've never forgotten that. So, I mean, that's one thing we should, we should have, I should have closed on that. You know, what would I advise somebody today? It's what we said, right? You got to find a position in whatever profession you're going to pick where you enjoy your work. It's what we tell our kids all the time. Nothing's more important. Because if you're going to be a professional, whether it's a broker, a developer, an investor, or a lawyer, it's a demanding job. And it's only gotten more complicated with more expectations, particularly on the legal side and the pressures of what we have been talking about, about client expectations and how hard it is to succeed and how it is a 24-7 job. And the next generation, the 25-year-olds are better, I think, at balancing work-life balance than we were, and that's really important. There's lots of divorces, and both professionally and otherwise, on the cutting room floor because some of us work too hard at what we did. So balance is really important, and, and finding something that you'll like, you'll, that you'll do, that will maintain your intellectual curiosity. And it's not about you know making money, although, as Tevye says, and Fiddler on the Roof, I've been rich and I've been poor, right? <laughs> having, money, having money is much better than not. But you gotta, you got to be passionate about what you do. I mean, that's not, not for everybody, but that would be my advice. And you got to find people who will teach and mentor you and take the time to do it going forward. Um, and from that, lots of good things happen. And we've been, Fred and I have been, incredibly lucky as we said during this whole couple of hours of, of I didn't know how good Sean Pittman was going to be I had the good fortune to see it in that summer and meet a lot of interesting people on, on all sides of the world both inside and outside the firm and Washington's been a great place to be Washington was a great place to be a real estate professional as you well know when I used to go around the country to talk to people in the firm they'd say well, what, what's it like in Washington when we were in Chicago I said you know what Look, you can't Washington's great, but Washington's different because we got this extra wheel here in the federal government that, that supports the real estate community in ways that both both obvious and not so obvious, right? But we were really fortunate to be in D.C. and to have this amazing run and work with people like Ray and Steve and Joey and Chip and all these iconic people that, that you've interviewed many and that have made this community, as Ray loves to say, you know, what it really was, a really different, different, I mean, I, I think it's over, a little bit overwritten that New York's this place where everybody's got sharp elbows. There's plenty of wonderful people that collaborate in New York that we've had the good fortune to be 
to work with and, and, and be on deals with. But this is a special place. And we've been really lucky to be here. And I've been really lucky to be with Fred for 40, I guess, 41 years now. So it's been great. It's been so a great final question, uh, Jay, and this uh, relates to Washington in a way. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? What I would say this week is, thank God we've pivoted and we've turned the page on the last four years, come into town and be part of a unified country and a unified group of people and listen to what people on the other side say. As I used to say when I talked about negotiation, what's the most important characteristic in negotiation? It is listening. Mm-hmm. What did your mother tell you? Listen to me. <laughs> listen. And listening, just as Joe Biden said last week, you need to listen to what everybody says. And from there, let's just hope that we can build a country, rebuild a country where polarization is not what we're about, but working together to build a better place. On that note, Jay, thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and and please pass on my thanks again to to Fred. And uh, we're on to the next one here, and I really appreciate it. This was great. You guys were very thorough and very informative about the profession, your perspective, and and Washington in general. And I thank you. Well, thank you, John. You've done a wonderful job doing these interviews. I've loved listening to Wendy and Steve and Ray and all these other people and Gary and people who have been big influencers in our lives and in the lives of this great city that we've all had the privilege of living. Well, it's been my pleasure to do this, and I've really enjoyed the process and having you guys to know all these years. I mean, I've known both of you for over 30 years. It's been just a great relationship, and I appreciate it very much. Great, John. Thank you. Thank you. So we just listened to Fred Klein and Jay Epstein of uh, DLA Piper on our latest uh, episode here. And I'm, as usual, I'm bringing my sidekick, Tom Amos, uh, in for our pod- postscript. Tom, welcome. Hey, John. Yeah, so today for the postscript, I want to start by talking about Jay's quote uh, here towards the end of the recording, where he'd said, um, you know, the company culture can't be built remotely. I, I wanted to start and see what your thoughts were on that, John. Do you do you agree with that? Do you think that that's the case? Or do you think that it's a little bit more maybe complicated than that? Well, before I answer, I'd like your perspective, Tom. Uh, what do yeah. you think as far as, you, you know, your your company and how is it's it's working in the pandemic here and what your experience has been. So, you know, working for a construction company, I I, I think I agree with Jay's statement for for at least for our company, right? That that we're so dependent on face-to-face interaction and bringing and new people to our team and such a strong team dynamic that it would be difficult to instill that remotely. We've got there's one individual that reports to me that started January of last year. So his experience with us was was short-lived during normal circumstances before we started working more remotely. And we've had to kind of adjust 
natural just to to make sure that he's not feeling isolated and that that he's having some of that camaraderie that we've got within our organization. And so it, it's definitely a different strategy. I think that there's been a little bit of a learning curve for everybody on our team to to make sure that we still we still have that and that's not lost. We're fortunate that you know we're our DC division here is a group of about 25 individuals and we're we're going into the office two or three times a, a week and we're used to also being on job sites so so we 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 always are kind of bouncing around from the office to the field as projects are are going on so that's that's not new to us but for sure there's been a, a learning curve to onboarding and bringing new people on and and kind of still instilling that um company culture that's been different but i think i think that um i think we've learned but i think that it's it's strained a little bit on our normal processes but then you know i think about other organizations um my fiance working for for capital one in more of a creative position and her whole team i think um is thriving kind of with this remote culture and uh and and it really seems to be working well within their organization. So I, I think it's it's dependent on kind of what what your your organization does. I could see how law firms like what Jay and Fred work for, that would be important. And for my industry and construction it's important, but I think that there are a lot of companies out there that that um, you know won't necessarily need that. Well my take is that there's a direct correlate, almost an inverse correlation of experience with with a firm or with with other people, and comfort in culture. So if you've been working together for a long period of time, and you know the other people pretty well, and you understand the the you've been in the culture for a while, and you have a way of working, the remote aspect is uh, is a inconvenience, and there's maybe a little you know, missing them from a, an emotional standpoint physically. But I think it works well in an organization where it allows people to concentrate on what they needed to get done on a project level basis and then collaborate online when they need to and talk through things because they know each other well enough. Whereas with somebody that's brand new to an organization, to come into a, a company on a virtual basis could be intimidating and difficult because you don't really understand the way people communicate amongst themselves in an organization as well. And there's a built-in synergy that's already there that takes time, I think, for people to to understand and develop. So that's yeah. my sense yeah. of, of it. I think that's that makes right. sense. That's right. Yeah. The 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 new people to organizations for sure just takes longer, it seems like, under these circumstances to 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 get that comfort level and and understanding of what you know the the roles and responsibilities are and and kind of the the dynamics among the team. So I think that's right. Yeah, I think the key really is the is the dynamics between the, the team. The the unsaid and feeling that you have amongst each other that you can't really develop unless you're in person with other people and understand both verbal and nonverbal communication <laughs> amongst, yeah. the, amongst the group, just the way people operate. Right. And the other thing that I've noticed, I've heard recently in other experience is that if you don't see people's hands move 
and you don't on a screen typically. There's a lot of communication that happens with hand movement, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. when you're in person with people. It's an interesting dynamic I hadn't thought about until somebody brought it up. It's interesting. But anyway. Well, I guess I'll start to try to, on these video conferences, to hold my hands up higher in the the screen. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) The other thing that I had here that I think what I most enjoyed um, from this week's podcast was Jay and Fred talking about kind of the evolution of law firms through their career. There's just such a multitude of differences. And I guess a lot of industries go through through evolutions. And you've got, you know, traditional law firms out there and then large ABS firms out there that, you know, are reaping the benefit of, you know, scale and, and economies, franchise law firms out there that are relying on kind of their their brand and generating business. And then you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got small niche firms that really specialize in things. And I think um, what what kept coming to mind is they were they were talking about the changes through their careers in law was uh, you know virtual law firms coming coming online and and kind of some of the changes and not necessarily um, something that is is prevalent in real estate. But it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. I, I just was listening to something recently about the uh, Do Not Pay app, which is like a, a, a AI law firm. And basically, the premise is this: that uh, you know, if you're disputing parking tickets, they've got an algorithm that has methods for different jurisdictions for for trying to get you out of paying that that ticket. And so it's it's funny to think about something like that being automated. And it'll be interesting if there are other facets of, of law that go to kind of automated things or or even virtual that like a lot of what we've been talking about with industries, just, you know, being able to work from anywhere across the country. So it'll be interesting to see where things go. Well, one of the things they talked about is the in the real estate sector in law, you know, there's various uh, specialties within this within the real estate law sector. So each of them have their own kind of subspecialty, Jay being in leasing, which is, uh, you know, obviously all documents working, you know, working with the, le- the, the lease itself and structuring it and negotiating all the aspects of it. And then uh, Fred is much broader in the in transactional work with financing and purchase and sale agreements and joint venture agreements and all the different documents that go into a transaction, uh, the financing aspect of it. So they kind of subspecialize in that. And then there's the whole zoning piece, which is land use law, which each jurisdiction has specialists that focus on that. And he discuss, they discuss those as well. And so it's interesting that you can be somewhat of a generalist in law, but because of the sophistication of a, an urban market like Washington, D.C. and other other sub, sub, uh, urban markets, you, specialization really is uh, uh, important to become kind of a you know uh, an expert in your particular area of practice. So that's an important part of uh, what they talked about. I think it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all I got, John. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, listeners, for uh, listening once again. And please listen. Uh, every two weeks 
And if you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach me at john, J-O-H-N, at coenterprises.com. Appreciate it uh, and uh, look forward to listening once again. Thank you.